0: Hi, this is Jonathan Bullinger here with Andrew J. Salvati, introducing you to the new, improved Inside the Box, the TV History Podcast. It serves all your needs. If you need history, if you need TVs, if you need podcasts, it does it all. Quick, easy, efficient. And now for only four easy payments of $39.95, only if you act now, it can be yours. We'll even throw in an extra podcast called Fourth and Long, the NFL and Culture Podcast. But act now. And our next 20 callers will get this set of steak knives for free. (laughs) It slices, it dices, it purees. But remember, you must act now. Operators are standing by. Inside the box, our prices are, well,
1: actually we're free.
0: But stay tuned, because
1: the next 20 callers get this handsome set of restaurant-grade chef's knives for free. Up next, Hard Sell, aggressive TV pitchmen on...
2: The following program is brought to you in living color. As early as 1923, David Sarnoff recognized the possibility of developing a television system. This is the
0: dimension of imagination.
2: Oh
0: yeah! Now I remember! It's Inside the Box, the TV history podcast.
1: There in podcast land, and welcome to this very insane and in your face episode of Inside the Box. I'm Andrew Salvati, and with me today is Jonathan Bollinger. How are you doing, Jonathan? Are you ready to take advantage of
0: today's unique prices? Yes, thank you, Andrew. I'm very excited about your prices and very excited about this podcast.
1: And aren't these steak knives wonderful? Today we're going to be talking about some of our most favorite or loathed TV pitchmen, and so we're going to be doing something a little bit different with our format. It's kind of going to be like a show-and-tell. Each of us is going to report on our favorite pitchman, I have one of my own, and then Jonathan will talk about his pick. Uh, But first we're going to provide a little bit of history regarding television pitchmen and make a few rudimentary distinctions. Jonathan, would you kindly tell our home audience about this wonderful introductory offer?
0: I'd love to, Andrew. What we're offering today, for a limited time only, is a new, improved history of the TV pitchman. He inspires, he hawks, he's charming, he's energetic, and he's now yours for this low, low introductory price of... Okay. Uh, I don't think our audience can really take this hard sell for the entire episode. No. No, let's, let's can it So <laughs> I'll, uh, I think I'll just go back to using my own voice. Um, there are really four types of salesmen that we should unpack here for this episode. Uh, The product pitch embedded within the show itself, the national television commercial, the local or regional television commercial, and the infomercial. Early television in the 1950s and 60s was often underwritten by a sole sponsor, and thus the sponsor's name was incorporated into the title of the program. For example, uh, Texaco Star Theater, or had the show's star perform an in-program advertisement of the product as we had shown in a previous episode with uh, Andy Griffith and his cast were basically shilling for Sanka Coffee. Well, as television evolved and was mass-embraced, networks were able to sell multiple commercial spots to run before, during, and after programs. As the networks gained a national prominence, they could command large commercial fees from ad agencies and their clients who desired their products to be seen by a national audience. These are, of course, the types of salesmen, so to speak, we are the most familiar with. Usually starring a young, up-and-coming actor who a few years later often becomes the next big thing, these commercials sell us our cars, our beer, our financial products, breakfast cereals, toys, and, of course, cleaning products. The FCC and voluntary guidelines accepted by broadcasters in certain industries shape what and how we see it. For example, back on December 6, 1951, the Code of Practices for Television Broadcasters, or simply known as the Television Code, was voluntarily enacted by the National Association of Broadcasters, or abbreviated as NAB, and a seal of good practice was displayed on some U.S. TV stations while they signed on or off from 1952 until the early 1980s. The code prohibited the use of profanity, the negative portrayal of family life, illicit sex, drunkenness and addiction, presentation of cruelty, detailed techniques of crime, the use of horror for its own sake, and the negative portrayal of law enforcement officials. News reporting was to be, quote, factual, fair, and without bias. And commentary and analysis should be, quote, clearly defined as such. Most importantly, it limited the commercial minutes per hour. Due to changing social norms and added competition from cable television, the code was ultimately suspended in 1983. Up until the mid-1960s, the network showed three minutes of commercials per every half hour of programming. ABC began controversy when they wanted to add a fourth minute during their hugely successful Batman television program in 1966. Some affiliates revolted, and ultimately ABC backed down. Later, in 1968, the NAB updated the television code limiting non-programming material to 10 minutes per hour in primetime and the number of interruptions to 2 during a half-hour program or 4 during hour programs. At the end of the next decade, in 1979, the Justice Department filed an antitrust suit against NAB, accusing them of limiting time to charge higher ad fees. A settlement was approved in 1982, resulting in the aforementioned suspension of the NAB's television code. Later in 1984, restrictions relaxed further when additional federal regulations that limited 16 commercial minutes per hour were lifted by the FCC in June 1984. The Public Health Cigarette Smoking Act was signed into law by President Nixon on April 1, 1970, and the FCC was a major proponent for it. The ban of cigarette advertising on television came into effect January 2, 1971. The beer industry also self-regulated through, at first, the U.S. Brewers Association, known since 1986 as the Beer Institute. Obviously, there have always been beer advertisements on television, but the Beer Institute employs a strict advertising and marketing code that I think we'll post on our website. But some of the highlights include not portraying persons lacking control over their behavior, actors should be a minimum of 25 years of age, they should not portray sexually explicit activity as a result of consuming beer, should not depict Santa Claus, and although beer advertising and marketing materials may show beer being consumed, where permitted by media standards, it should not depict situations where beer is consumed rapidly or excessively.
1: So no fun at all.
0: Yeah, no fun at all. And they also get around by saying, "Where permitted by media standards," so they're not necessarily saying that you can't see uh, see beer being consumed, but um, but they are sort of saying that at the same same time. So with the decline of regulation, especially after the FCC rule change in 1984, combined with the rise of cable in the 1980s and the general hunger on the part of the audience for content, commercial content rose quickly. So today, Andrew and I are focusing really on two distinct types of commercials, the local or regional business ad and the infomercial. The local television spot, at least for the successful local business, is actually not that cost prohibitive as far as fees typically ranging in the hundreds and low thousands of dollars. Of course, the more spots you run, the higher your ad costs. Plus, you save on the production costs because for many local ads, the low production values bring a certain charm and uniqueness to the whole thing, sort of like a primordial form of today's YouTube videos. Plus, during the time of the 1970s and 80s, it allowed some businesses to feel like they were participating in show business, which at that time was still a relatively closed-off affair and could act as a bit of an ego boost and provide a small measure of celebrity for the owner who starred in his own commercials within his own community. As for the infomercial, it rose directly from the FCC's 1984 ruling. Now that there were no commercial limits per programmed hour, and stations were broadcasting longer hours and they looked for additional revenue, the idea of a long-form commercial took on new significance. Today, more than 300,000 infomercials are broadcast in the U.S. and Canada every month. Such efforts have been tried in the earliest days of television for candy and, based on sources, most likely a home appliance uh, like a blender, but were stopped when the FCC first enacted their rule. The first modern infomercial was most likely from Robert Murphy Jr., who marketed a quote-unquote new generation of hair growth treatment and worked with a Chicago ad agency to sell the program-length commercial. A parallel rise in scale, although space for religion had been provided via the original television code, was also the rise of televangelists during the 1980s. And the focus of Andrews and my interest in this topic is that often the best and most memorable of these local commercials and infomercials are when they employ high-energy, dramatic pitchmen. The grandfather, so to speak, of the infomercial was Ron Popeil, who pitched Mr. Microphone, the Ronco food dehydrator, and the Showtime rotisserie. Oh, that thing is awesome. (laughs) Set it and forget it, Jonathan. (laughs) He he popularized the phrases, operators are standing by, and but wait, there's more. While not the archetype for the zany, high-energy host of most commercials as Andrew and I enjoy, Ron nonetheless was the consummate salesman. And that really is the context for these commercials. The pre-radio and pre-television charismatic pitchman you would see set up in stalls at state fairs or carnivals, charming you, entertaining you, and making you believe, against your better judgment, your life would be better if you bought his product. This form of salesmanship via infomercial also found a new calling when the health, nutrition, and fitness craze began in the early 1980s, and only grew stronger in the ensuing decades. The positive of this, of course, is that more people want to be healthy. That's a good thing. The negatives are they don't want to do the work, and many people are willing to profit from this by selling get-fit-quick schemes. These charismatic pitchmen increasingly used loud presentations with eye-catching presentations to ensure that you quote-unquote called now, or at least stopped by their store. This was especially prevalent during the 1990s with exercise guru Tony Little, get-free-money-from-the-government-guy Matthew Lesko, Tybo's Billy Blanks, among many, many, many others. But the first prototypical modern era, insane, high-energy television pitchman came not from the infomercials, but from the New York City area of local television commercials.
1: That's right, Jonathan. And, you know, as somebody who was born and raised in Union County, New Jersey, I was well within the orbit of Crazy Eddie and his insane commercials, uh, I was very young, of course, but I distinctly remember going with my parents into one of the stores, and it was definitely this carnival atmosphere with electronics and salespeople and gimmicks and balloons all over the place uh, to the extent that it kind of reminded me of some kind of like scene out of Star Wars where they have like the mangled droids all over the place and right, you know right. they're all for sale. But you know, I was wondering as somebody who you know moved to this area a little bit later but was still kind of on the hinterland, do you remember? remember Crazy Eddie from the 80s at all?
0: Yeah I I happen to grow up in an area of uh, eastern Pennsylvania called the Lehigh Valley and it's basically equidistant between New York City and Philadelphia and so we got the best of both. We'd get a little bit of the New York channels uh, as far as the commercial radius and a little bit of the Philadelphia. So for me that the three that really stand out from my um, from my memory as a kid and we're only going to talk about one of them today is New York's Crazy Eddie. Um, New York's also getting Phil Rizzuto for the money store. Um, And then there was a, famous uh jeweler in philadelphia called Robbins brothers and robin's Ethan walnut
1: oh yes yeah, i don't and, remember and that
0: very similar strategy to what you're going to talk about which would they would do a, a very 50s doo-wop sort of uh. Uh, musical commercial and their zany part was the one guy had uh, a full beard much like yours but he had a diamond stuck in it Ooh! and so i'm not gonna say, start doing that but wow <laughs> so so basically uh uh uh, uh uh, Robin Ethan, Walnut, Phil Rizzuto for The Money Store, and uh, and uh, wh- who you're going to be talking about. Yeah, that was definitely in my orbit uh, as I sat and watched way too much television as a child. <laughs> right.
1: Uh, so let's just back up a moment for those of you who uh, might come from uh, other parts of the country and are unfamiliar uh, with what we're talking about. So Crazy Eddie was the name of a string of discount electronics stores in the New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, and uh, a little bit in the Pennsylvania area. The company started as ESR Electronics in 1971 in Brooklyn, New York, by Eddie Antar, who is the Eddie in Crazy Eddie, uh, and also his brother Sam, uh, or his cousin Sam, rather, and a few of their uh, other close family members. Despite becoming synonymous with unscrupulous and illegal business practices, Crazy Eddie's major contribution to consumer electronics was to prove that the idea that a chain of freestanding electronics superstores, complete with a Crazy Eddie record and tape asylum, could actually be successful. At the time, in the late 1960s and early 1970s, it was generally assumed that in order to be uh, successful in the tri-state area, electronics retailing had to be uh, part of a department store, uh, a company store sponsored directly by manufacturers like uh, Pioneer or Bose or Zenith, uh, or a store with more general merchandise, usually home appliances and hi-fis. Sure, there were mom and pops, but there was little yet on the scale that Crazy Eddie would ascend to uh, in the late 1970s and 1980s. But Crazy Eddie, um, as some of you may well know, became famous or infamous for two reasons. First, because of the Antar's fraudulent business practices. Early on in the company's history, the management regularly falsified their accounting in order to minimize their taxable income. They skimmed cash to the tune of several millions of dollars per year, which they laundered through uh, Israel and Tel Aviv. Uh, They inflated sales numbers. Uh, Then, when they eventually took the company public in the mid-1980s, they actually stopped the skimming, which made it appear as though the company was increasingly profitable. Nice little trick. Uh, They laundered money, as I said, through Israel and Panama. Uh, Perhaps most famously, they engaged in classic bait-and-switch schemes, luring customers to their retail stores by advertising low prices on select products, uh, which were, when the customer arrived, conveniently not available or uh, sold out. Uh, The customers were then persuaded or pressured into buying a similar but slightly more expensive product. Cementing his persona as a tough, intimidating, and slightly maniacal businessman, uh, Eddie Antar evidently brought his 100-pound German shepherd named Sugar, of all things, around with him to business meetings, a dog that he himself had uh, taught how to fight. Apparently, he also used to lift weights during business meetings in his office. Eddie Antar eventually resigned from the business in December 1986. The company was investigated by the New Jersey District Attorney's Office and Eddie actually ended up fleeing the country for a little while ahead of some serious fraud and insider trading charges. He eventually stood trial in 1993 and in 1996 finally pled guilty to some of the charges and ended up with an eight year prison sentence and some heavy duty fines. Now, all of that would be an interesting story in itself if our episode today were about consumer electronics, which is actually something we've talked about in various contexts and episodes before. But today we're going to be talking about the second thing Crazy Eddie was infamous for in the tri-state area in the 1980s, which was their advertising campaign.
2: Crazy Eddie's greatest TV and video sale ever! Get a video recorder, color TV, large screen TV, video camera, even an audio video component system. Get it all on sale now during Crazy Eddie's greatest TV and video sale ever! Remember, we are not undersold. We will not be undersold. We cannot be undersold. And we mean it. So get anything and everything in TV and video. Get it now during Crazy Eddie's greatest TV and video sale ever!
1: Crazy Eddie, his prices are insane! Okay, so that's not actually Crazy Eddie Antar in the commercials. That's actually WPIX radio DJ Dr. Jerry Carroll, who live ad libbed some of Crazy Eddie's earliest radio spots on WCBS FM New York in 1972 when the electronics outfit was a one store operation. Eddie Antar heard the zany delivery style one night and called the radio station to express his enthusiasm directly to Dr. Jerry, telling the DJ to deliver the line the same way each time with the extended A in Insane. <laughs> yeah, right. Thereafter, Carol became the immortal voice and later the public face of Crazy Eddie. As synonymous with Crazy Eddie as Jerry Carroll's Hard Sell is, the first TV spot actually featured a mock doo-wop a cappella tune complete with a quintet of leather-clad, tough-looking Brooklyn hoods called The Boys in the Bathroom, which was actually shot in a men's room near the cafeteria at Brooklyn's Pratt Institute.
2: When you think you're ready, go down to Crazy Eddie. The man who's got most everything his stereo sound. His audio selection, Wap-a. Wally with your perfection. He's the man with all the lowest prices around. So come on down and put it to the test. See whose price is really all the best Ooh. Who picks you up with a satisfaction place And guarantee a smile oh. upon your face Oh, when you think you're ready go Down Ooh. to Crazy Ooh. Eddie Ooh. The man who's got most everything Ooh. A stereo Ooh. sound And so the story's so told the story's Across told. the whole
0: wide world Ooh. Crazy Ooh. Eddie will not Ooh. ever be undersold Ooh. Need a new stereo, color TV, CB? Call 645-1196 for the most ridiculous prices
1: ever during Crazy Eddie's Christmas sale. In August? But soon thereafter, the carol spots appeared. According to Sammy Antar, uh, Eddie's cousin, uh, the original slogan was Crazy Eddie the Man is Insane, but Eddie, quite understandably, didn't like the implication there. Uh, as you can imagine, and the line was changed to his prices are insane. Now, according to Sam Antar, Crazy Eddie was able to convince a few local television stations to broadcast later into the evening than they had been uh, originally by buying advertising time during late night movies. Um, This is kind of the cool thing about being in a large market with some, you know, maybe smaller or smaller than, you know, the big network scale uh, channels uh, and TV operators. Whether Antar is exaggerating Crazy Eddie's role in television programming, I can't really say. It might take a bit more research. But regardless, the company was one of the leading local buyers of commercial time on radio and television during the company's peak in the 1970s and 1980s. Another thing Crazy Eddie was known for Uh, In terms of its spots were its movie spoofs, which included a spoof of Saturday Night Fever in 1977. Maybe we can put that ad up on the website Uh, and the Superman movie in 1979, uh, for which they were actually sued by Warner Brothers, who uh, distributed the Superman movie. Though many in our listening audience may not be familiar with these spots as they were local to the tri-state area during the 1970s and 80s, they were featured in the movie Splash, if you remember that movie when Daryl Hannah goes to the electronics uh, department at Saks and uh, learns English. Um, it was featured or a spoof of uh, the Crazy 80s spots were featured on Saturday Night Live in 1977 when Dan Aykroyd did a parody called Crazy Ernie. Uh, There was a spoof during the Iran-Contra affair in the mid-1980s done by the HBO sketch comedy show Not Necessarily the News, Uh, and in this parody, uh, Crazy Ollie or uh, Oliver North sold used weapons at bargain prices. Uh, and finally, I just actually stumbled across this a few weeks ago. There is a spoof of a crazy Eddie commercial in George Lucas's classically awful 1986 movie, Howard the Duck, in the very beginning when Howard is still on the duck planet watching TV at the end of a hard day's work. (laughs) Nice. Uh, so... Crazy Eddie was a bit of a cultural touchstone for the New York City area, and because the New York City area is so involved in movie and television production, it kind of became part of the cultural background uh, of the 1980s. Kind of an inside joke for that area, uh, and still is to those who who remember it. So Jerry Carroll as Crazy Eddie was certainly not the first broadcasting pitchman to employ the zany, over-the-top, hard-sell performance, kind of as Jonathan was hinting at. This kind of persona-driven advertising was pioneered by Earl Madman Muntz, an engineer and entrepreneur who sold used cars in the Los Angeles area before promoting consumer electronics on television in Chicago in the early 1950s with his own kind of quirky, idiosyncratic mixture of stunts, uh, costumes. He often wore one of those uh, bi-corner Napoleon hats. And uh, fairly outrageous claims like, I buy him retail and I sell him wholesale, more fun that way. Or another one was, uh, he vowed to smash a car with a sledgehammer uh, on camera if that car didn't sell the same day. So Madman Muntz is actually someone we might think about doing a separate show on, very interesting in his own right. He became a television manufacturer as well as a pitchman, and he did a pretty good business for himself, cutting the retail costs of his TV receivers by stripping out all the unnecessary hardware and circuitry, resistors, capacitors, transformers, etc., since Munz 's target customers were located in urban areas with strong broadcasting service, he could dispense with many of the internal components that were necessary only for long-range reception. The simplification resulted in dramatic reduction in price and uh, is actually captured in the term Muntzing, which is used for uh, stripping any kind of electronic uh, uh, device of any unnecessary components. So kind of interesting that both of these kind of uh, madcap pitchmen... Um, kind of had some of the same kind of undercutting uh business practices while there was you know fraud in crazy eddie's uh case i'm sure there wasn't that sort of thing in in Munz's. uh so that's crazy eddie and a little bit about madman months but um jonathan you have a favorite pitch man you want to talk to us about right
0: yeah, that's that's right, Andrew. And I I really could have picked from a, a couple a couple different examples from the infomercial uh, universe. Um, and I was really torn. I, I part of me wanted to pick Billy Mays. Um, part of me wanted to to pick the sort of lesser version of Billy Mays, who's currently on TV. Um, uh, uh, Phil Swift, I believe his name is. Yeah,
1: Phil Swift. Yeah.
0: Hi, Phil Swift here for Flex Shield.
1: You know that, that thing is awesome. He drives a, a truck underwater. <laughs>
0: Yeah, and he has a boat and the whole. Because the flex
1: seal seals the leaks.
0: <laughs> but as much as I wanted to pick Phil Swift, um, I actually went with a uh, with a different uh, a different person who I think it'll be clear who I'm talking about in, in just a second as I as I do some introductory remarks. And basically, uh, here's the story. Offer Shlomi was born in Israel and raised in Sheep'shead Bay, Brooklyn, in a Jewish and Italian neighborhood. Hoping for a, quote, less foreign-sounding name, he began going by the name Vince Offer back in 1986. The crude humor of the neighborhood streets informed his sensibility, and during the 1970s, he was fascinated by the salesman in the Crazy Eddie commercials. Though shy and an average student, Offer was attracted to the bright lights of Hollywood. His work ethic was actually quite robust, and at age 17, he dropped out of high school and moved to the West Coast. A good salesman who learned and plied his trade at the flea markets around the Los Angeles area during the 1990s, Offer sold enough units of an early version of what is then became known as the Slap Chop food chopper to produce his own film, the underground comedy movie, in 1996. Offer still sees himself primarily as a film producer rather than a pitchman. The movie was universally derided, and by 2002, Offer was once again broke. Returning to selling the Slap Chop and the now-famous Sham Wow at flea markets, Offer once again created enough sales to buy late-night TV commercial time on Comedy Central for an infomercial. The infomercial performed well enough to give Offer the idea of trying direct marketing, so as to cut out, in his mind, the middleman like film critics and taste makers. So, in 2007, he adapted the few things that had worked in his film and shot a ShamWow ad using a pitch style that he had feverishly honed to perfection. Vince's self-description of the style is, quote, very vanilla with a touch of inappropriate. The ShamWow commercial went viral and, according to Offer's account, sold millions. This allowed Offer to make a network ad for a newer version of the Slap Chop food chopper. However, in 2009, Offer found controversy when he and an alleged prostitute were arrested for aggravated battery and the accompanying blood-soaked mugshot photos also went viral. In an attempt to come back and refocus his efforts, Offer filmed a new ad for a washable, reusable lint roller named The Shticky. He also attempted a reworking of his film, but it was once again deemed awful. The sticky ad was different for Vince, since it both used other actors in addition to Vince, but not just as providing testimonials. And it also playfully addressed his high-profile arrest. The three products Offer pitched were established flea market products. He rebranded them with new names and made funnier, more memorable ads for them. Most recently, about two years ago, Offer continued the comeback attempt with a new product, an all-purpose kitchen cleaner called Invincible. He uses his same old tactics but continues the glossier production he began with the sticky commercial. Hi,
2: it's Vince with Sham Wow. You'll be saying wow every time you use this towel. It's like a chamois, it's like a towel, it's like a sponge. A regular towel doesn't work wet. This works wet or dry. This is for the house, the car, the boat, the RV. Sham holds 20 times its weight in liquid. Look at this. It just does the work. Why do you want to work twice as hard? Doesn't trip doesn't make a mess, wring it out. You wash it in the washing machine. Made in Germany. You know the Germans always make good stuff. You can cut it in half. Use one as a bath mat. Drain your dishes with the other one. Use one as a towel. Olympic divers, they use it as a towel. Look at that, completely dry. Put a wet sweater, roll it up. It dries your sweaters. Here's some cola. Wine, coffee, cola, pet stains. Not only is the damage going to be on top. There's your mildew. That is going to smell. See that? The most, of we're going to do this in real time. Look at this, put on the spill, turn it over, without even putting any pressure, 50% of the cola right there. You following me, camera guy? The other 50%, the color starts to come up. No other the towel's gonna do that? It acts like a vacuum. And look at this, virtually dry on the bottom. See what I'm telling you? Sham wow, you'll be saying wow every time. I can't live without it, I just love it. Oh my gosh, I don't even buy paper towels anymore. If you're gonna wash your cars or any kind of vehicle, you'd be out of your mind not to own one of these. All I can say is, Sham, wow you're gonna spend $20 every month on paper towels and your money away the mini Sham are for everything for everyday use this lasts 10 years this lasts a week I don't know it sells itself the Sham sells for $19.95 but you get one for the house one for the car two for the kitchen and bathroom but if you call now within the next 20 minutes because we can't do this all day we'll give you a second set absolutely free. So that's eight Shamwows for nineteen ninety-five. Comes with a 10-year warranty. Here's how to order. Call 1-800-951-7807. That's 1-800-951-7807. Shamwow is not available in stores and is made in Germany. Beware of Shamwow imitators. Call 1-800-951-7807. That's 1-800-951-7807. Call
0: now. Okay, so
1: so what do you have to say about this? Because we can't be doing this all day. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
0: No. So, so, okay. So that was the ShamWow famous ShamWow commercial, which uh, a lot of these, they shoot longer and then they chop them up for two different versions and shorter versions, et cetera. But to me, and I don't know if, if Andrew, you see this as well, but the, the origins of him as the classic flea market pitchman who literally can gather a crowd around him, hold their attention And then not only hold their attention, but for some to get them to move from holding attention to exchanging money out of their pocket for the product, it's all there. I mean, he's a phenomenal. I know this sounds crazy. because You're like, how can you be rooting for this guy? But I think for that very specific occupational uh, competency selling something to somebody on the street or in a stall this guy is magnificent i mean now admittedly it gets strengthened because it is a, a televised medium and so it's edited to to exactly accentuate his message and and only uh his his positive attributes but i mean this is and you can see it we he still keeps the prop that he probably was right, wearing right. when he's in the stall which is the the wireless uh you know the the the, the, headpiece, the, the headpiece right the yeah. headset right um it's all there and even though you don't know if you necessarily trust the guy, even though, you know, the product probably doesn't work as well as it should. I don't know. Maybe I'm weak willed, but I'm with him, you know, and, and, and so I think there's a there's a there's a foundation of his core attributes of as a consummate salesperson. And then he ups the ante, so to speak, because he puts in that sort of younger generation irre- uh, 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 irreverence. Uh, into the pitch, or as as some of the, the the journalists who've interviewed or written about him, is he sort of puts that 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 uh, side side of his mouth smile, you know, that kind of smirk right. into it. Um, that sort of tells you, yeah, I'm doing the same thing everyone else has done to you, but I'm also telling you, I know that I'm doing everything else, you know, yeah. doing the same thing. Yeah. everyone So I don't watch these. I mean, I think they're hilarious in the sense of just because it's, it, it, but but it's hilarious because his pitch is so honed, so perfectly, and he has it down pat. And he he is charming in his own way, um, and and he's almost shameless in the sense of of mm-hmm. pitching this 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 absorbent towel. Um, I don't know. I mean, that's why I picked him. And I, I just if you have any sort of additional thoughts or any any questions or comments. No, I mean
1: I think you've said a lot of I think what I would say now I have to kind of say parenthetically to begin with, um, in the master control job that I work for my living, I have seen Vince Offer and dozens of others dozens of times every night so you know it's kind of you know worn a little bit thin but you know uh, I I I think though it's kind of worn thin for everyone and I think that is the kind of relevance that you're getting at uh of Vince kind of embracing the absurdity of you know what he's doing as the direct buy salesman and as kind of you indicated before when you were talking about um you know the 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 kind of salesman persona that actually kind of you know the, there's a there's a history here that goes back to the nineteenth century. They used to be called snake oil salesmen right? Right, right um patent medicine salesmen who would go from town to town and as Jonathan was saying um were adept at gathering crowds around them to sell you know the latest hair tonic or nerve tonic or whatever tonic or patent medicine that they had on hand there's a great uh Twilight Zone episode actually about uh, snake oil salesman but that's mm. that's another topic entirely <laughs> so I mean yeah you're right you can see him uh, Vince author offer rather um, kind of personifying this history uh precisely in as you have as you have pointed out the headpiece that he wears right because in that kind of you know uh, um, I don't know, wearable semiotics, he's he's showing you that he does this out in front of a live audience. And he's kind of harnessing that image and that technique to pitch you this uh, product on television. And the testimonials are even from some kind of flea market or, right. you know, um, you know, event that he
0: was probably pitching these at live. Right. And and, and of course, the testimonials are, are pitched or, 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 or produced or directed, or, you know, fine. But the other thing, too, uh, to connect it back to Crazy Eddie, is Vince isn't sitting here doing a parody of a well-known film or a well-known song. He's not doing the, the Ron, Ron uh, uh, Popeil thing of making it look like a sh- kitchen show about the latest fad in cook- cooking and, oh, it happens to star the rotisserie you know chicken thing or whatever. There's something, and that's what—that's where I guess my—if there's any—and maybe (laughs) admiration's too strong of a word—but if there's any sort of origin to my admiration for this guy is that he basically turned a camera on himself in the most limited of sets and said, "Here's basically what I do pitching live. I'm just going to film it with a little bit of editing. You know, again, there's editing there, and there's like the star effects and filters, you know, and and all that. But but it's basically that and. And I think, again, I'm not saying I wish my kid, you know, I hope my kid grows up to be some snake oil salesman, slick, slick salesman. <laughs> of course not. But there is something, and I guess maybe it just appeals to me, but there's something about knowing in yourself that if things were so freaking desperate, you could go stand on a street corner somewhere, having spent your last money on a, a literally probably a piece of crap inventory, but with only the the charm, your voice... And your sort of uh, body language, be able to turn those last few dollars and that hunk of crap that you bought for cheap wholesale into real dollars through the exchanging of money with you know interested getting people interested enough to do that and coming out ahead at the end of the day. And I think that's sort of the origin and the essence of these guys, these pitchmen. I mean, I think you and I find it funny, and we certainly would love to do a whole episode where we just sort of mystery science theater style sort of laugh at these things and play them ad nauseum. But, but beyond the sort of the, the, the uh, humor enjoyment of it, it's this sort of phenomenon, this sort of cultural phenomenon in the history of sort of the salesmen in America. And we, in certain ways, are at least entertained by them. If not, we continue to fall for them every year, right. every month, every dollar.
1: All right. So that's all the time we have for today's episode on the hard sell. Again, we can't be doing this all day. These offers <laughs> are going to run out soon. So please call as soon as possible. Tell your friends, tell your mother, tell your father, tell your cousins. Call (laughs) right now. Get the deal.
0: Yep, our operators are standing by. Please uh, check them out on Facebook or at www.tvhistorypod.com. Also check us out on Twitter. Um, For Andrew J. Salvati, I am Jonathan Bullinger, and uh, hopefully Steve will be back with us uh, next time. But uh, please, call now. Uh, Supplies are limited.
2: It's Whisper Quiet!